0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the
2: Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
3: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief with your hosts Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. So talk about grief. huh? Um, We are experiencing global grief at this moment. Um, The world is pretty scary and weird at at this current time. And uh, before I announce who our guest is today, I just want to take a minute to talk to you guys um, about the pain and the emotions and the fear and the hope and all the different things that you must be feeling um, about the current situation in the world. I'm a service industry person, and as are many of my friends, and uh, we record at Roberta's, a wonderful restaurant, and uh, it's an industry that's been impacted very hard. Um, There's the financial crisis element of this, there's a health crisis element of this. Uh, It's a triggering time for people who have lost loved ones or who have sick loved ones, uh, who have, you know, fear of dying or fear of sickness, it's very complicated. and I think it tends to bring out your truest parts of yourselves, which for many of us is goodness and kindness and hope. And, uh, so I don't have an answer. I just have, uh, I have hope and I have a lot of sadness and I have a lot of frustration just like all of us. But, um, I want to say that if you guys need some emotional support we really hope that you feel like you can reach out to us uh, processing at heritageradionetwork.org uh send us your listener letters send us what you're making to cope food wise what you're it doesn't have to be a food thing it can be anything and uh you don't have to write a letter for us to read on air although we'd be happy to but um you know if you need us we're here uh, today on the show, we have an amazing guest, Risa Morimoto. Uh, Risa is the founder and CEO of Modern Aging, a foundation that has been set up to help with uh, preparing folks for managing the care of their dying and elderly parents and loved ones, which is amazing because, as someone who went through that myself, uh, it is something that we are not prepared for and it can be very complicated and very lonely and very hard and confusing practically. Um, Additionally, it is also very difficult emotionally. And I think what Risa's doing is very important. So thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope that uh, if you're listening today, that this brings you some comfort. And please reach out to us. We really appreciate your listening. And we love you guys. And please stay strong and stay healthy. Okay, bye-bye. Enjoy our talk with Risa. We're here today
2: with our guest, Risa Morimoto. Risa, hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah,
3: thanks for being here. This is awesome. So we have a connection because we are all from the same town in Long Island.
1: I know. Small, small world.
2: Yes.
3: Yeah, very small world. And Bobby, can you talk a little bit about you knew Risa's mom?
1: I did. Um, when I had my business with your dad, um, we had a business called Love and Oven in Huntington. And we started in 1972, and I think it was about the time when your parents were starting their business, the Cura Barn. What year did they start the Cura Barn? 75. 75. Right on New York Avenue in Huntington.
2: So. Yes.
3: And still there, and it's an amazing restaurant. It's one of the, my favorite Japanese restaurants that I've ever been to in the entire world. It's just such a lovely place. It's in an old house, right?
2: Yeah. My parents bought the house, and they started cooking lessons there in the beginning. And then the students actually begged my parents to open up a restaurant, and that's oh. what happened. Oh,
3: my gosh. I didn't know that was the, the how it went.
2: Yeah, yeah, because yes. there were no Japanese restaurants. It was actually kind of difficult for them to start it mm. uh, because there were no Asian restaurants at the time. Right. Um, and so after kind of jumping over a bunch of hurdles, they were able to open up uh, officially in 80, the, re- the actual restaurant. Okay.
3: Was that similar to – so you grew up in the 80s. You went to Waltman High School. Um, was that a similar vibe in school? Were you one of the only Asian families in the town? I mean, or was it just restaurant-wise?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I knew every Asian family
3: in all of Suffolk County, yeah. I think. Did that at all lead to having a stronger family bond at home or community bond within the other you know Asian families that were living in Long Island and Huntington at the time?
2: I guess yes and no. You know, there was a flow of kind of rejecting my identity for a while Mm -hmm. and not wanting to have anything to do with being Japanese. And then, you know, as I got older, embracing it much, much more and then moving to Japan and learning Mm -hmm. the language and Mm -hmm. really kind of, you know... Getting really deep into who am I and what is my purpose and what is my connection to this you know Japanese culture yeah Mm -hmm. and the food sure, of course course.
3: so I mean I barely grew up in a restaurant family I mean I grew up in a restaurant family Uh, my parents had the love and oven but that was when I was very young so it wasn't something I was aware of being immersed in but I'm so curious always being someone who went on to open a restaurant and knowing the kind of really just intense bonds you form and how an intimate it's such a in personally intimate setting. And so I've always been really curious about people who grow up in restaurant families. And can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? It
2: is so much a part of my identity. Um, you know, I was that little Asian kid that would go in on Saturdays and, mm. you know, be on the counter to, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that was helping awesome. out at the store mm-hmm. and, you know, wrapping, you know, fried noodles or, and making gyoza, which is the dumplings. Mm. Um, and then, you know, gradually in my teenage years, I was, you know, a waiter My brother worked in the kitchen. My sister, you know, was a waiter. We, you know, we were all rotated and were hostesses. I mean, it was just so much. It's funny. The first day my parents opened up the restaurant, I remember coming home from school and I thought that we were robbed because my parents actually took all of our artwork and our pots (laughs) and our pans and took everything into the restaurant and there was nothing at home anymore. So it was kind of, yeah, it was that level of you know, that's amazing Grassroots kind of business building small business, but it's amazing. And, you know, through the years, uh, my sister still works there, my cousin owns it now. And um, so it's, it's a true, true family business where it's kind of a rite of passage for all of us, my nephews, you know, working there. Mm. Um, when my mom had the store, there was a woman who brought in her newly adopted Korean baby, and she the baby was crying and she said i don't know what to feed her can you please help me mm-hmm. and so my mom made her some rice and some fish or something i don't know uh long story short that gr- little baby grew up and ended up working at crow Barn, oh um, my God. for a while <laughs> and now you know incredible. she lives in she lives nearby in huntington and mm-hmm. So it's great. So it's you have so many of those stories, you know, when the kid first ate his first miso soup or had his first piece of sushi yeah, or whatever, you know.
3: Totally, yeah. It's sorry. An- you
1: probably had your first piece of sushi at
3: Kirby. Oh, I a hundred. Actually, I a hundred percent did. I remember that I would go in and I felt so adult because we would go there and I would say I like takamaki. <laughs> like that was my <laughs> yes. thing as like a, just a little eight year old. And I, I, mean, I always did like. when I was picky about weird things, but I always loved sushi and I always loved going to the car barn. I loved tuna from a very early age. And wow. It was always such a special place to go. We went there all the time. And the
1: quality, up. we always knew to this yeah. day that the quality would be the very, very finest.
3: Well, it's really home cooking. Oh, yes. thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's also one of the very last Japanese family-owned Japanese restaurants. Mm, oh, wow. That's interesting. Um, you know, so as soon as it kind of the boom happened, everybody knew that they could capitalize on it. So. Sure, sure.
1: And um, it was always so artistic there because your dad is an artist, right? Yes, yes. He built uh, furniture. Tell us more about that.
2: He built furniture. He's a sculptor. He's, you know, a lot of the artwork still um, yes. that's in there is still his. And yeah, no, for my parents who came here knowing no English, no real business skills. They built this from the ground up, and it's mm-hmm. it's really amazing. I mean, it's 45 years later, and it's still standing, mm-hmm. which is really a testament of their hard work and their vision. And mm-hmm. now it's just such a staple within Huntington, it which sure is very cool. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: it really is. And, you know, it's just when, as you're describing it, it sounds almost like an additional member of the family, right? It's interesting how sometimes a space can really take on these, like, human qualities just because of all of the love and all of the things and all of the emotion and everything. Person that's passed through there this like you know some a restaurant a good restaurant a space really takes on the identity of almost an additional family member and really sounds kind of like that's what the kura barn is for you and your family oh
2: oh 100 <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah. Mm. i mean i don't even know if if you know that kura barn so kura actually means barn mm.
1: oh. and
2: they named it or my dad named it kura barn because um, it was first opened up as a store and in ancient japan they used to hide their treasures in a barn Oh, and so yeah. he was essentially selling treasures. Oh, that's incredible.
3: I was going to ask about that actually. Yeah. you answered one of my questions. <laughs> so I'm going to check that off the list. Who was the cook at home? Did you guys cook at home at all? Or did mom or dad cook at home outside of the restaurant?
2: Uh, my parents did. My mom did mainly. Yeah. I mean, my dad does cook mm-hmm. and he's a very good cook. Um, uh, but my mom mainly, mainly would cook. And then we would, as we were growing older, my sister's a really good chef. Um, The irony is that I didn't really learn how to cook until I was an adult and had to. Mm -hmm. And I blame my mother for always cooking, Mm -hmm. for not learning how to do it. Uh, And my brother, because he worked in the kitchen, is a really good chef, too. Right. And he's worked at, you know, very high-end Masahisa type of Japanese restaurants out in Colorado. And so, yeah.
3: Wow, that's amazing. Cool. So your parents owned the restaurant and then kind of more recently, but... Within the past decade or so, your mom started struggling with Parkinson's, correct?
2: Yeah. So she had a stroke in 2001. Right. And that was when um, we decided that she just no longer could work at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, Where did it happen?
1: Was she in the restaurant?
2: No, we were actually at home. Mm -hmm. Um, We were having lunch. Mm. and, uh, And we were just talking about some family stuff and she started crying and then that was it and we I had no idea I was in denial about it my husband was there and he was the one who looked at her and said I think she had a stroke Um, recognizing kind of the facial features um, from his grandfather who had had a stroke
1: how old was your mom at the time only 65 Uh
2: yeah so that was you know and she was in seemingly great health you know she was walking the dog every day. She was working all the time. You know, she ate well. So, but she had really high blood pressure and mm-hmm. she kind of ignored that um, mm. clearly. And so that it was, she was kind of a ticking time bomb that we didn't realize.
1: Do you think having the restaurant was part of why she ignored her health?
2: Possibly. Mm. I mean, I, she, it's the restaurant, it's everybody because mm. she's, she's constantly, she was constantly worrying about everybody else but herself. Mm
3: and that's very typical but um it is it's typical of women it's typical of moms and it's tough because in reality taking care of yourself and thinking about yourself is thinking about other people because it's the other people that need you know they need you the most they need you in your in their life the most but it's something we all do thinking that we're taking care of other people when and i i think in reality the best way we can do that is take care of ourselves
1: so what was the impact when your mom had that stroke how did it affect her Uh,
2: She lost her right side. So she had right side paresis. She lost her speech Mm -hmm. at the time. The speech came back, but it was It was slow going. It was interesting because in the rehab, you know She's an immigrant Japanese woman and of course the speech therapy is in English, but her Japanese would Mm -hmm. want to come back So, you know, it was tough for her Um, She learned how she had to relearn how to write and everything with her left hand uh, which is really challenging but the beauty of it was that she discovered that she's an amazing painter (gasps) and so she started sketching and painting watercolors and like really amazing art like not I'm not (laughs) being you know um biased or anything well maybe I'm a little biased but
3: (laughs) we'd love to see if you would share any pictures with her left hand with her left hand that's incredible
2: Um, and that was that became her therapy for many years oh. until the Parkinson's set in, um, mm-hmm. and she was diagnosed in around 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she probably had it for a couple of years, but we didn't realize it because of the right side paresis, right, and the shaking. So, um, but then uh, again, my husband was the one who kind of saw the signals and saw the symptoms and said, "I think she has Parkinson's," and so we got her officially diagnosed and. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it was a 10 year haul for her. Um, you know, even with the stroke that she had in 2001, doctors thought that she wouldn't make it past 10 years. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you I know, know she, she made it until made... 2019. Right. A right. testament
1: to her, her strength yeah. huh? and, and stubbornness. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then mm. at the same time, you mentioned that your father um, also is struggling with dementia, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. Um he was diagnosed in two thousand sixteen. So he left Long Island in eighty seven to become an artist full time and moved up to Vermont oh where my. he had his studio. So he was up there for thirty years. Two thousand sixteen, you know, I was flying home from Japan actually, and I touched down and my you know, turn on my phone and it's going crazy and my father um, basically burned out his part of his house uh, by accident and that's when we Uh realized so we kind of had little you know we had little hints here and there people would say certain things like his neighbors and stuff like I think you know he's leaving on the stove or I think he's really forgetful you might want to check in on him a little bit more and he is such a strong independent stubborn man that Mm. we thought this is not possible uh but then that was kind of the beginning of the end for him unfortunately and so we went up there and then we had to bring him down oh my goodness
1: that what a, what a was not fun yeah <laughs> and well, so when you say you had to bring him down where did you bring him to Long Island uh-huh. yeah
2: so we brought him down and we had to trick him into going into the hospital you mm-hmm. know he's not an easy person so um to get properly diagnosed mm-hmm. and and so we did and uh yeah, so it was 30 years up there of him living on a beautiful five-acre lot, beautiful home. By himself? By himself, mm-hmm. and uh, with a huge you know, wood studio where he was making his work, and it was an old violin studio oh. from the early 20th century. So oh, my It was God. just amazing, amazing, magical place. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, we had to let that go in order to pay for his health care. Yeah.
1: And what happened with his health care? Did he stay in a facility or was he home or what was
2: so that was the tricky thing because my mother was so sick and so we couldn't bring him home because he was causing so much stress so we mm-hmm. were trying so he was in in the hospital and then he was in rehab and then we were trying to get him into a nursing home even though we vowed that we would never do such yeah, a thing of course yeah.
3: but when it comes down to it you know you you think you won't do certain things because you're like oh i would never do it but then you're faced with the actual decision i have had a similar choice with my dad before he passed away and it's very you are surprised by what you actually kind of have to do you know what i
1: used to tell families uh, is that safety trumps autonomy yeah so in other words safety comes first really everyone everyone's safety and everybody honors autonomy but safety has to come first yeah so what happened with him where did he go
2: uh so now he's at hill air nursing home in huntington Mm -hmm. um and he thinks he's in vermont which is Mm -hmm. good and his long-term memory is totally fine it's just a bit It's so bizarre because his long-term memory is fine and he's kind of plateau, but his short-term memory is horrible. So he doesn't, like, we have to tell him every single time we see him that my mother has passed, like he, Mm. but then I'm kind of like, well, that's actually a very cool way to live.
3: In some way. (laughs) In some way. I was just thinking that, actually. In some way, it's like, you know, it's not ideal. It's terrible for everyone around you, you know, it's scary and weird and, uh. I really actually can only speculate because I've never gone through it myself. Um, but yeah, for the actual person who's living in that world, it's the alternative is knowing that you're sick and you're in a nursing home where you uh, you know and that your mom has passed away, but in his world, he's in Vermont and doing what So he wants yeah, to it's like
2: Groundhog's Day. Yeah. so he you know it's it's odd because he and sad because he can't do his work anymore. Oh, yeah. um, but he's 88. he's about to be 89. Uh-huh. He had a good long run um you know the way i look at it is that he's he's an old man and he's had the privilege of becoming old and not Mm -hmm. everybody has that privilege so and he has family that's supporting him and you know we're visiting him and we bring him good meals yes um funny enough you know with my mom and my dad so my, my mother was in rehab for three months or four months you know, we had to rotate and bring food into her. <laughs> Speaking of...
1: <laughs> we can understand, Yes, right?
3: we can definitely
2: understand. For sure. And, yeah, I should only w- hope that that could happen to me. Like, it wasn't even... But the funny thing is, it wasn't even something that she demanded. I mean, we knew. Yeah. And she'd look at the food, and she just wouldn't eat the hospital food. Oh, yeah.
3: Um What kind of stuff did you bring her? All Japanese food.
2: Yeah
1: yeah nice. so it was nice the, little bentos right so mm. she wanted the food of her culture but also did she like good food like was she somebody that just wanted good food oh, as well abso- yeah. yeah yeah absolutely Yeah, yes. a good cook wants good food yeah
2: no it's true though <laughs> you yeah, just can't eat um the other stuff and even my dad um in the nursing home although he stopped but apparently the nurses told us that he was actually throwing the food out into the toilet in the toilet oh wow um <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah. so he was clearly expressing the way he felt about the food
1: yeah Mm. um some choice he had some choice in the matter yeah (laughs) you know it seems to me you had two parents that you were taking care of do you have children as well
2: yes uh, i have an 18 year old daughter okay
1: but for a period of time
3: you had your child and you had your
1: parents who needed help that's kind of a squeeze
3: yeah how did you actually how did you going back to what we were talking about earlier about your mom not maybe always taking care of herself. How did you take care of yourself during that time with having two parents that were, you know, needing so much of your attention and ailing? Well, it's, you know, it's a team
2: effort. So my family is very complicated, but we ended up, my husband and I adopted our daughter only two and a half years ago ah. from okay. Colombia. Oh, oh, wow! wow. Uh, so she was 15 at the time. And we were trying to adopt from Japan for a very long time. Um, and a lot of our... Uh, Kind of decisions to prolong you know having a family was because my parents were sick and you know when you get sick in this country unfortunately you don't know what kind of bills going to come around the corner and it's really Absolutely. terrifying and super stressful and it makes you you know hesitate whether or not you can actually afford to have a family isn't that awful Rid- yeah it's ridiculous isn't
3: that awful and totally unfair and crazy and really Ugh. It, I'm, mean, my blood actually is a boil <laughs> thinking about. No, really, it's, it's something I've been thinking about, and we all have been a lot lately, and just how the cost of healthcare and medical care affects your actual life decisions, your ability to live or die, your ability to enjoy time with, with your family. In this case, to start a family, that's really tough.
2: Oh, we've had family friends that have gone completely, completely bankrupt. Yeah. Um. Because they got sick. Yeah. Which my, is. Yeah. Mm-hmm horrifying and really it just makes me so angry because it's so wrong on so many levels as human beings how we do this to one another for profit and we can go on and on and on about it but yeah
3: um so you decided to wait because of that to
2: yeah and but my sister so my sister lived next door to my mom uh so she was the primary caregiver and my brother was in colorado he moved back Mm. Um, you know and my husband and I lived in the city my husband was doing you know kind of the night run my sister was doing the days mm-hmm. you know my brother mm-hmm. was filling in I would come in out on the weekends when I was home and so it was a whole family effort until um, basically burnout happened and yeah. we were all just so exhausted and we were all clearly fighting with each other a lot more really? than we should be and that was the breaking point. And then we started applying to Medicaid and all that sort of thing and started getting AIDS into the home oh. to help us out. And that was really the lifesaver um, for our family. And I, I don't know how families do it because for us it was 19 years. Um, and I still think, I still don't know how we did it, but um, eventually, that was the other complications that even though we would have AIDS come in, you know, a lot of times it wasn't the right fit, of you course. know, culturally or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, my mom want, wanted certain kinds of food. She wanted to be handled a certain way. Yeah, you course. know, it's all these little things that you don't really think about. You that you just can't have anybody just come into your home,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I think that's the hesitation for a lot of families. Yes, um, especially the senior, right? They do, they just don't want some stranger handling them, and I get it. Um,
3: but again, it's this, you know, autonomy versus safety. Yes. Um, It really is, and it must be so difficult. Again, I can only speculate because I haven't been there, but I've, I've seen people I'm close to, grandparents and my own dad, go through the same thing, and it's like this weird... Regression. It's like you've lived your whole life. You got to this peak of being an adult. You stayed an adult for so long. And then all of a sudden, and it can happen so suddenly, your autonomy, your choice, your whole life kind of gets taken from you and put in so many losses. It's so hard. And then it's so hard to see that as the child. It's such a painful process. So in 2019, then your mom passed away, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but just
2: to kind of go along with what you were saying, the the whole kind of seeing the demise of somebody that you love um, is horrifying. And that was kind of the
3: inspiration for modern aging. Right, yes. Um, Which I desperately want to get into because I think it's such an amazing thing that you've started.
2: But yeah, so I just, you know, I just didn't want that to happen to myself or my siblings or those that I love and like my generation I mean we're, we're kind of next up right so how do we yeah. do this better totally
3: so um, we can get into modern aging actually if you would like to talk about that first then we can kind of go back to talking oh, about sorry. your mom no it's it's fine I'd, I'd like to I really want to talk about it because I think it's amazing and being someone who went through that same process I'm an only child and my parents are divorced so I pretty much went through that all alone with my dad and And he
1: was in another state. He was was in another state. He lived in
3: North Carolina. He didn't have anyone around him. He didn't have a wife. I, you know, was the only person. He refused to move back up here. And I didn't know what to do. And by the time it was really the end, he had had cancer for like 10 years. So similarly, like we had some time to adjust to it, but it was a long process. And right towards the end when it really seemed like it was, you know, time that he was either going to die or never be the same, you know, never go home again. It was so hard to know what to do? Who to call? Who right. to use to access? Where could we maybe get money from? Like, all these things. He was like, talk about healthcare. He was about to lose a grant for his chemo medication, which was a million dollars a year. So if he didn't well, have the grant and he didn't have a million dollars, which he didn't, he would have just died anyway. So all these things kind of snowballed. So when I found out about what you do, and I'd love you to tell us more about it about modern aging, um, it's uh, it's something I wish that I could have been you know able to have access to or I just any kind of support during that time is so helpful because it is so crazy for everyone so can you tell us more about that
2: sure I mean it grew out of my experience with my parents and just realizing like I just felt like I needed a PhD yeah. in order to navigate the healthcare care system it's crazy I'm like how am I an educated person yet I can't figure this out and how to apply for this and what am I eligible for and what can mom have and yes and then um I just found myself going to Japan a lot, and then searching elsewhere, because I also felt like even products for her mm-hmm. there weren't. It wasn't the right product. It wasn't. It was ugly, and um, it didn't work right. It wasn't ergonomic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I was bringing a lot of things back from Japan, and it just made me realize that maybe there was something here that I could help other people, and so that kind of. Grew, I'm a filmmaker by trade, yeah. so doing documentaries and producing TV. It just made sense for me to start documenting documenting what I was seeing and mm. what I was, you know, who I was with, and and so that kind of grew into the YouTube channel, okay. um, and where I started interviewing yeah. experts and doctors and lawyers and mm. um, just giving people information that they, I felt that they needed, you know. Um, and so now we're kind of expanding. Um, it was originally just for the senior market, but now it's really expanding into kind of this 50 plus market because I feel like <laughs> we're the ones that are making those decisions for our parents. We're the ones that really need to know what's happening, and we also need to prevent that from happening to Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Um, and how can we change the model of, yeah. you know, of the current healthcare system? Yeah. So wonderful. Yeah, so we're, you know, doing online, we're starting to develop online courses for people. So it's really education and media and pretty yeah. products. Ooh, it's <laughs> incredible. Stuff, right. you know? Cool stuff, like innovation, right? Let's- yeah, yeah. Give us an example of what yeah. an
1: innovative product would be.
2: Oh, God. So anything from, like, you know, of course, I've seen robots, you know, um, uh. that do caregiving stuff. Anything from, you know, even an Alexa is a great right. tool Absolutely. for people. That's so
3: true. That's really, um, that's really people, true, yeah. For
2: uh, people who, you know, who just want to use their voice. Or totally. there's, there's tons of different things that are kind of coming out on the market for families to communicate better in terms of mm-hmm. what's going on with mom and dad. Um, so, yeah, so we're just trying to kind of be a hub for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, looking at integrative health and how, because for me, I feel like just conventional medicine and seeing how my mom was treated or mm-hmm. how my dad is being treated medically, um, I feel like we've kind of lost touch a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, <laughs> actually, mm-hmm. you know, kind of our connecting with our whole body, right? Yes, um, sure. And so, yeah, and just talking to a lot of integrative. Uh, medicine doctors or palliative care doctors or functional medicine doctors and how and and that's that was always my parents philosophy of health right, right so it wasn't just because right. you had a headache doesn't mean you just take aspirin it's like go drink some water
1: right Can you help our audience understand what integrative medicine means
2: yeah so it's basically um, combining conventional medicine with more holistic medicine so for example, I visited in Bangkok, he's an American doctor, but he has a clinic in Bangkok where he has integrative oncology. So it's all ca- cancer patients where some of the patients are doing chemo, but they would come in there and they would get, um, they would get IV of vitamin C mm. and turmeric and just all these, it's amazing. And you see these people getting stronger, faster because they're working on the whole body and not just killing the cells, but trying to strengthen the body.
3: Totally.
1: Having had a long medical history myself, one of the most frustrating things is when I would go to a holistic physician and they would deny the need for the traditional medicine, allopathic medicine, and when the allopathic doctor would deny the need for the holistic. And so integrative medicine makes so much sense because it's complementing both, and I just appreciate that so much.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm hoping that it becomes, you know, more mainstream and just more of you know what people do
3: totally I mean one thing that I is just hitting me really about what you're doing um with modern aging is that you know I think there's a thought that we have societally and perhaps it's true that the order of things is that you get old and then you get maybe sick or You know and it's not tragic to people who aren't in the family you know it just makes sense to our brains right a tragedy is when a young person dies when an old person dies it makes sense Um, and who's to say whether that's true or not, it's very personal. However, what we don't think about is how it affects the trauma, the family. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And how really, truly scary and out to sea you can feel and how unsupported we Mm. are as a country Mm -hmm. for all, you know, the people who are like, this is the greatest country in the world. Okay. Well, nobody does anything to help you basically ever. (laughs) And definitely not in this situation. And nobody talks Mm -hmm. about it in school and Mm -hmm. nobody talks about it at all and you're totally lost and it's such a terrible thing to tack on to your just grief that you're already experiencing which is really bad enough and it totally exists no matter how old or how sick the person is so it's not just like only people who lose folks in tragedy you know tragic situations are in pain it's very painful to watch an elderly parent die and you know i just really appreciate what you're doing because i was so i was like triple affect it and for long after my dad passed away like I had this whole snafu with figuring out how to close his estate it was in North Carolina I couldn't afford a lawyer I'm still dealing with it he died two years ago I'm still continually emailing that i've messed something up in my application and i even got a lawyer to help me at the end with filling out this like glass it's like people don't realize those things and then how triggering those little things can be those hiccups those mistakes the insurance that didn't get checked like because you're already so upset it triggers your grief yeah over and over again so i really applaud you for being able to help people navigate this process more easily
2: well, I'm not sure how much I'm, I, I hope that I'm helping. You know, it's funny when people do reach out to me, it's always like complete, utter desperation and yeah. it's, it breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, just the in depth of the pain and the stress that they're under. And then they they have to make these, you know, life decisions for another person. It's crazy. Mm. But I do have to say though, that, um, you know, as we get older, uh, I feel that, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but people don't like to talk about advanced directives. People don't like to fill them out. Um, and if anybody doesn't know what they are, their health, the health proxy and the living will, it's things that you want to just sign and put away, you know, in the, in the event that something happens or you get sick, that you're going to be treated in the way that you want to be treated. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Your wishes uh, will be followed exactly. through. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, so that the burden is not on your children or, those, you know, your loved ones, because that's the worst, right? Yeah. That you know... Like, dad's in the hospital, and you have no idea because they didn't want to talk about it. Totally. And exactly. now it's yeah. up to you. Yeah.
1: And I'd like to make the point that very often parents will ask their adult children to discuss it, and the adult children might find it, this is so upsetting, I don't want to talk about this. But it's so important to for both the adult children and the parents to discuss these subjects ahead of time before the emergency happens
3: you're so much it it is so much better to get it taken care of ahead of time my dad was very avoidant he didn't even sign he didn't have his will signed until he was in the nursing home and going between nursing home and hospital in the last couple weeks of his life and then i was so angry about it so that's the other thing if you don't take care of some of this stuff then you you know add on to the other emotion like how could you not have taken care of this how could have you not signed this how do i not know what to do so now i have to be the one to say whether we should have a dnr why didn't you say that you and it's I mean?
1: confusing to be angry at your it's dying parent very tough, <laughs> it's again. Confusing.
3: but it's real yes. yeah it's yes. so real and yes.
1: the so real. resentment
2: and yeah no it's true it's like how could you be so selfish to yeah. do this and put it on me to make yeah. that decision for you and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my husband and I have been very clear. We were
3: <laughs> it's really good. And you should, and going yes. over with, with your kids, again, to just, this is almost a funny story. In fact, I laughed at it, although it's kind of sad. But when my dad, when I finally did look at his will when he was really dying, uh, he had a page in his will that said this random person who he hadn't seen in 25 years, this friend of his, was to get his ashes. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. He's like, I want them to go to Billy Jennings. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Billy Jennings. I was like, I want them. He's like, you don't want that. It's like gross and creepy. I was like, why didn't we talk about this beforehand? Billy Jennings is going to have your ashes? Are you kidding me? And it was like, I was so angry at the time. And now it's kind of funny. It's almost like (laughs) cinematic, you know? But really, like. It is out of a movie. Talk about this stuff beforehand. So then when you actually are dying, you don't have to have a fight about where your ashes going to some random bozo. In Florida. Right. And but- I
2: do have a, a close friend who had her partner passed and um, he died of cancer within a year. Mm. And he was, but he was very clear what he wanted, what he wanted with his body, how he wanted to die, where he wanted to die. Like he took care of all of his affairs. He was kind of a minimalist also, but she learned so much from that. And I would talk with her and I learned so much just. You know, the stress, the emotional stress that you're under when that person's dying is enough, right? Yes. So when those things, those le- legal things are taken care of, it just is really helpful because you can be more present yeah. with that person.
1: 100%. So if we can go back, you, um, we're going to discuss your mom and her dying. When, when did you realize that your mom was dying?
2: Uh... Probably April of 2019 was when she was diagnosed with a tumor mm. um, in her uterus, mm-hmm. and she was, you know, suffering from pain. She had um, very high pain tolerance, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and a curse uh, and a blessing. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so the doctors said, you know, probably six months type of thing. And um, but the thing is, is that she was really not a typical patient right so she was supposed to pass within 10 years of her stroke right. she was already 10 years into her Parkinson's so we're like hmm I don't know you know <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, basically she was fine up until two days before she passed wow. and then she stopped eating and that was kind of the end mm-hmm. um, which makes me happy I mean she was always a great eater you know always loved her desserts after dinner oh. and uh... <laughs> what was her
1: favorite dessert
2: as she loved her apple pie <laughs> um awesome. oddly and she, she loved anything sweet yeah. quite frankly and she loved everything yeah she loved her home-cooked meals and um you know but with parkinson's at a certain point we had to puree everything so yeah. you know right. it's just not mm-hmm. yeah, enjoyable yeah um and, and how I did you she, handle
1: the dying part of her did you have hospice come in or what did you do
2: so we had this was really um torturous for us actually of when to decide to have hospice come in we were advised um that hospice should come in um and i think this is a painful moment for most families just because you're admitting now that you know that person's gonna that that person's death is imminent yeah
0: and
1: And that there's no treatment right it's really what the palliative
3: care
2: And my mother was fine with it. She's like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm ready to go. She said she was ready to go for many, many years, actually. And we were ready for her to go. So we thought, and I I think still we were ready for her to go. I mean, she was in so much pain and was, you know, her physical body, she just couldn't use it anymore. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Her body was done.
2: Her body was yeah. absolutely done. She couldn't see properly. She couldn't hear properly. She couldn't yeah. swallow. She couldn't move. She, you know, yeah. so it was just... And she was down to 70 pounds and mm-hmm. use So, and we would talk about death all the time. I mean, we were very open about it, and we don't have a morbid sense of death. Um, so luckily, you know, we, as a family, could be very open about it. And uh, so finally, though, but a lot for legal reasons and financial reasons. We were trying to figure out, okay, you know, if she goes into hospice, we just have to make sure she's safe. And
3: yeah,
2: but I think the biggest surprise was how amazingly supportive they are for the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what I actually didn't really expect as much for some, I don't know why, Yeah, yeah. but, um, cause I was told that, but it really is a sense of relief that you have someone to call 24 seven. Um, and who's going to be really compassionate. It's amazing. Yes. They're just. And uh, so I was in California the day that my mom stopped e- eating and uh, my sister called me and said, we think this is it. We also had the we think this is it call like several times. Yeah, so I yes. was like, yeah, really? But it did really sound at this time that it was it. So I flew home that night. I came home, you know, the, I flew the red, high, right, red eye home. I walked into my mom's room, and yeah, she had stopped. By that point, she wasn't eating for 24 hours. The doctor, the nurse came in. The hospice nurse? Yeah, the hospice Mm -hmm. nurse came in and said, "Um, I think she has hours. Mm.
1: They can tell by the breathing, they can tell by different signs, the beds of the nails, there's different ways of telling that the dying process has begun
3: yeah what is it the beds of the nails do you know what it
1: turns it starts to turn white it has to do with blood flow oh right okay the blood starts pumping the heart stops Uh, working
2: it was um yeah it was really this amazing process to see someone you love and they're you know they're seeing their life end
1: it is such an honor not didn't you find it that way? Even though it was oh. a little bit a little bit scary in a way, but so such an honor because they came into this earth, they helped birth you, and then here you are towards the other end of the circle. Yeah,
2: yeah. It um. So my my nephews flew in from Colorado, and uh, every she had around like twenty five people in the room. Wow. It was crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. What so else? it was home hospice. Home? It was
1: at your her home. It was in her home. Yeah.
2: She insisted that she wanted to die in her home. And that made me feel really good that we could honor her wish. Yeah. Um, and so we're all, yeah. So it was her former aides, her current aides. Mm. It was family. It was friends. It was, and I'm looking around. I'm like, God, this woman is so loved. And, um, mm. you know, after about an eight-hour vigil, you know, I remember a friend telling me that, you know, oftentimes if there's too many people around, they feel like they can't go. Mm. So I just basically kicked everybody out Mm. and I said, you know, we'll just take turns one at a time. So my dad was there and her sister. So her sister was going to take the first um, spot. And uh, within five minutes we were called. And so we started screaming like I went into the room. And I saw my mother take her last breath. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. A holy moment. You know, there was a book written by Stephen Levine, and it's called Meetings at the Edge. And I think that's so powerful. That was the edge of her precipice. That was the moment. And you were right there at that moment.
2: Yeah, I will never, ever forget it. Yes. Um, and I don't know if people believe in signs. So this was the other thing. We do. So my, <laughs> my mom, so my friend told me, before she passes, ask her for a sign, but it has to be really specific because mm. you can't make it too generic. Because then you're going to see that all the time, oh, all and right. then you are going to pretend. You're looking for it everywhere. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so when my mom was um, so my mom was orphaned uh, when she was ten. So she had four other siblings, and mm. they had nothing. Mm. And this is wartime. This is during World War II, post World War II. So they used to sing all the time because they had no other way of entertaining themselves. And the one English song that they used to sing was "You Are My Sunshine." Mm. So that became our family song.
1: It's our family song, too. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Seriously, yeah. we'll tell you about it later. Go ahead. Okay, now, <laughs> now I, have like I know. I know. We did, too, when we saw that. It's our family song.
2: Um, so I whispered into my mom's ear. I said, just, just let us know you're okay. And if you could have you are my sunshine come into our life. And um, so I said, I don't know how you're going to do that because it's an old song and how the hell are we ever going to hear that song. But if you can do it, that would be great. And by this point, she was unconscious and I didn't even know she heard us. And but um, so it so the next day, all of us decided to go for a walk at Sunkin Meadow Beach and it's October, so it's pretty empty. And um, it was actually completely empty. And so we had three cars because there were so many of us. Mm. We park side by side. I get out of the car. I go to my sister's car. And you are my sunshine is playing in her car. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) Are you kidding me? No. Uh, And I have a recording on it on my phone that I'll show Um. you. She picked up her iPhone. Didn't press that she was <gasps> checking her messages and the song just came Ooh, just like started playing oh on her god, phone i yay. have no
3: body chills
2: yay wow. i'm cheering <laughs> i love it yeah no it was <sighs> it was so amazing That's and incredible. it just there was so much comfort in it oh my
3: god and
2: um i i still the, and it's funny because even in the recording because i just started pressing record on my phone you hear my wow. sister at the end. She's like, who the hell touched my phone? You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: <that's laughs> she literally
2: just picked it up and it started playing. Oh, my So would God. you like to hear our
1: family connection of why yes. that's our song, too? This is crazy. When it's I was so pregnant crazy. with Zara, I used to rub my belly. I would sit in the shower and I would sing, you are my sunshine. And I would rub my belly, you are my sunshine. And I would sing the song over and over again. Well, I named her Zara Ray for that reason. Because Zara is a Mideastern word for East Dawn Brightness. Yeah and Ray. No. So yeah. that's why her name I know. is Zara is Ray. And so it's we so love that wild. song. It's We sing it. And then every. I had a
3: music box that I still have that when you open it it plays You Are My Sunshine.
1: Yeah. Yep. so this is such a wonderful
3: yeah wow oh, i know we're all glowing here folks it's crazy and <laughs> sobbing yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and we don't have any
3: tissues really so this hard scratching paper towels and this we have some lysol wipes we'll don't, we don't get the coronavirus in our eyeballs oh. um yeah that's why and so that's and, and then you crazy. guys it's so crazy and then you guys had a funeral for her in your home right Yeah, in her home yeah. right in her home of course i'm sorry so Can you tell us a little bit about that? We saw a bit. We were lucky enough to see a video of it and it was so beautiful and so touching and just so it made it like actually just made so much sense. So
1: filled with ritual and spirit and you were creating that ritual yourselves as a family.
3: It
2: was amazing and it was so perfectly my mom and Mm -hmm. I just hope. Yeah. So that video is on YouTube and it's funny because I the reason why I ended up editing it, I shot it not knowing if I would ever see that footage again. Right. right. Cause I was like, am I being like really crazy doing this? Um, but then I was like, you know what, this is just going to happen once. If I don't ever look at it, then I don't ever look at it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then coincidentally, the New York Times was, was, doing a piece on home funerals and asked us to submit a photo. And so that's why I was like, okay, I should just edit it. Mm-hmm. And so I did, um, when mom was in hospice, um, I was trying to reach out to this woman actually prior to my mom being in hospice. I reached out to this woman Amy Amy Cunningham. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Amy. I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. And because I wanted to interview her for Modern Aging, it had nothing to do with my mom. And then when my mom's, you know, death was becoming imminent, I was like, I think this is what we want to do. Mm. And so I consulted with her and she was amazing and um, it all kind of really came together so beautifully because she's in Brooklyn so she doesn't typically do home funerals in in
1: And what is the name of her organization?
2: She's um, Fitting Tribute Funeral Services Mm -hmm. Um, and so she'll help with green burials or home funerals. So essentially she's, you know, she told me that you don't have to embalm and I was stunned. I was like, we don't have to embalm, that's amazing, I thought that was her requirement. By law.
1: You mean she didn't have to go to a funeral home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: And uh, that's so, another great
3: thing for people to know.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, oh incredible. my God. I cannot imagine it any other way to have my mother. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's some people who may think it's morbid, but quite the contrary, it is so comforting to have her there that we were able to wash her body, we were able to dress her, we were able to be with her. She was just on dry ice. I bought the casket online. Yeah, um, and uh, for us to really have real closure with her, because I feel like for her to have been ripped out from the home and then just see her embalmed in a funeral home, I yeah. think would have been tragic on so it's many levels. A crude
1: and almost cruel thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And Amy explained to me like why that became tradition, um, and that was only because of the war. I think it was actually the civil war where they just had mass bodies and they just had to bring them home long distances. So they had to embalm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. And that's where that whole tradition came
3: from. That's amazing. And it's just interesting because it's just the status quo for people. They're like, okay, that's what I do. They're like, I don't think most people know know that that that's an option. Right. And it's so good to know that there's an option. People listening. That's an option.
2: Exactly. It's an option. And it's like, it's, First of all, embalming is toxic for the environment. They don't look like themselves. You know what they actually what the embalming process really is is really grotesque. Actually, it really is. Um, And to have them, you know, be natural. My mother looked like herself, Uh, and you know, it was amazing.
1: She looked like her her. Die, her dead, her dying self, yeah. right? She didn't look like she was twenty years ago. She looked at that moment. Absolutely, she, she looks great. Actually. Yeah, Which that's was... beautiful. That's so I mean, beautiful.
2: She... Yeah. Um, you know, we put her in her, her sister's kimono, and um, so we, and then we had people come over, and you know, people were bringing over tons of food. My sister does floral design, so she. Went a little overboard with the flowers. I oh, mean, I saw crazy. the flowers. Folks, beautiful.
1: watch that video. We're going to give you the, uh, the link. direct link later. But it is so beautiful. There's The casket is filled with flowers and pictures and her artwork, correct? Mm-hmm. Was her artwork in the casket as well?
2: So we had some artwork. We had people write messages to her, basically letters that we put in there for her. Um, Amy had us do... Um, you know, the Nepali, like, prayer flags? Mm-hmm. Mm. So they have these, like, blank prayer, f- prayer flags that you could write your oh, own message. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and we put that in there with her. She was cremated. Um, so we had, you know, it was just very much the way our family does most things. You know, everything was mm. just handmade. And, yeah. Um, mm.
3: It was a proper send-off.
2: Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> Suitable was, for a... It,
3: beautiful woman and to kind of bring it all around full circle it actually kind of is reminding me and I don't know if I'm correct in saying this of just how we began the story about the restaurant and of having a space and a home like a home and uh, that actually is another member of the family this meeting place where everyone just feels very connected and together and I feel like you must have been able to do this kind of send off because of the relationships you guys established like early on when you were all young and a a big family and you know how
1: to work together
3: Well, yeah, but I mean, this isn't an accident, right? Like, you guys are a close family that became close in this very specific, special way by having a family restaurant. Not to say you have to have a family restaurant to do this type of thing, but I think it probably made you inclined to do this type of thing it would let you know do you agree
2: yeah absolutely and we actually after the cremation we all had lunch at crowbar oh my god oh yeah. you That's did amazing. and what
1: did you have we, we want to hear what you ate <laughs>
2: <laughs> so my cousin just prepared you know some sushi and we had some gyoza and i think we had some ebby fry and mm. some chicken something i don't even remember but it was um yeah and what was amazing also uh my mom's wake was seeing old customers that I hadn't seen in decades um, who came to yeah to say goodbye to the house yeah yeah
3: it's really just such a special thing I I've always thought as having a restaurant working in a restaurant being a server owning it it's this opportunity to really touch people's lives in ways that you you know, but you don't really know. You know, people come there when they're despair. They come there when they're celebrating. Exactly. They remember it for the rest of their lives. It's something that even, you know, Bobby and I didn't always have the greatest relationship growing up, but, like, no matter what, whenever we would go to the car barn, we had a it's lovely true. time, and that <laughs> remains true. It's and, really true. But you don't realize that you mm. affect people like that, and yeah. it's so generous and, like, so kind. And then... It's such hard work. Right, so it's totally unsurprisingly, to me that yeah. people would old customers would want to come back and pay respects to your mom because she did so much for them you know probably more than she'll ever know
2: oh for sure yeah for sure i mean my mom was the restaurant owner that would take the infant away from the parents and say you to eat i'm <laughs> gonna watch the baby
3: oh my god oh yeah that's heart that's yeah. real heart and soul yeah um, that's what it's all about So we kind of ask everyone the same question towards the end of these episodes and I'm really curious to know what your answer will be. Um, If you could tell yourself one thing kind of at the beginning of this process, this grief journey, really at any point, I mean... Which really
1: started 20 years ago when
3: your mom had the stroke. Right. Right. Um, What bit of advice would you give your former self?
2: Wow. Um, I guess I would think it's it's gonna be okay. Sometimes it's gonna be a lot harder than you ever thought it was gonna be, but you're still gonna be okay. Mm. Um, And I think that I don't, grief is such a weird, evolving um, sense of being that you just, I guess I thought maybe at the beginning of the journey that you know you grieve and then it would end but it doesn't um it just changes who you are and that's okay you know and i think it's and it's okay to talk about it um and it's okay to cry spontaneously (laughs) for no reason um
1: and it's being human yeah
2: you know and i think that that's that we don't need to be so fearful
3: yeah,
1: that's why we're all here, sitting here at six o'clock, on this Thursday evening. Yeah, because we we don't want to be scared, and we don't want other people to be scared. It's part of our humanness, yeah. and we're sh- you you have shared the vulnerability of your family and yourself, and it's been, it's just so wonderful to know you. I feel like we've always known you, but yeah. now we a, really you
3: know feel you like a kindred spirit. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: I'm so grateful for you guys for doing this. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing it really really is and it's so important I mean you're talking about you know what the rep you know the restaurant represents or what modern aging represents or whatever but this you know so that people can just tune in and just be okay you know and know that they're going to be okay and that we can talk about these things and it doesn't mean that
3: you know, totally (laughs) lightning's going to strike upon you. Absolutely. And then similarly to what you're doing with modern aging, it's a similar thing. It's about preparedness. I mean, we're all so eager to be prepared with getting masks and gloves and hand sanitizer when the news tells us to be afraid, but like we're unwilling so often or just unable to be prepared for this thing that we know actually is going to happen to all of us, right? Yeah. It's not a scare. It's real. It will happen. We'll all experience it mm-hmm. for ourselves and our loved ones. And yet for that, we're so <laughs> reluctant to just do simple preparations that don't require. It should be fear. unspeakable. Yeah.
1: We're speaking about the unspeakable. That should not be unspeakable.
3: Totally. Risa, um, can you just tell our listeners uh, a couple things to plug about yourself? Like how can, how can they check out modern aging maybe some of your videos?
2: sure um well depending on when this is going to air uh the website is thisismodernaging.com and we're in the midst of revamping is why okay i say that um and we're on facebook and instagram at thisismodernaging um and we're just going to be developing new programs and we're actually going to be launching a podcast soon amazing
3: as well. oh my gosh we'll definitely let our listeners know about that when that happens too thank you so much oh, thank you so thank much you so this much. was such a wonderful wonderful episode Thank All you. Right, me, no, could thank we do you. one little thing? Yeah. Can we just
1: sing the first verse to this you are my sunshine? That would be great. Would you be I willing? Thought. Okay, <laughs> let's I try I don't know
3: if you I don't know if we'll like, make I, it through. We I better know. get another roll of these <laughs> crunchy ass paper towels, but okay. All right, Bobby, why don't you lead us off? Okay. You
1: are my sunshine. My, my only sunshine. sunshine. You, you make, make me happy, happy
3: when skies are gray. gray.
1: I'll always love you, my darling sunshine. Please don't, don't take, ever take my sunshine, sunshine away.
3: That was sweet, very sweet, Bobby. <laughs>
1: <I'm>
3: so sorry, I <laughs> couldn't do. That. No, it's fine. That was so sweet. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Risa.
1: Thank you, Risa. Thank
3: you.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry At ChooseCherries.com
3: So I don't have Bobby with me today to unpack the episode with Risa but just a quick outro. Um, What an amazing episode. I was really just so touched by her and uh, it was great to sing with her. I love the Curl Barn and I'm going to miss it and I hope it reopens and I hope a lot of our favorite restaurants reopen. Um, Guys, This is uncharted territory in many ways, but in other ways, um, it isn't. And I have been taking some comfort in reading history. I've always been someone who's very interested in history. I read a lot about history. I listen to a lot of history podcasts. And it's been the thing that's comforted me most in this time, just to remember that so many things happen that seem insurmountable, Um, some well before us, some in our lifetime. And uh, we get through them and I really feel hopeful that we'll get through this and, uh, yeah, please hang in there. And if you need anything, please contact us. And, um, I don't know what else to say. I'm at a loss for words, which is unusual for me, but try to do something to make yourselves laugh and look out the window, get some fresh air far away from other people, but, um, be careful and be safe and be considerate of each other that we're, we are all part of, um, the greater good at this moment, which is the, the positive takeaway. So we love you and, uh, please support Heritage Radio. We need you more than ever. If you have some extra money, please donate to the network, uh, heritageradionetwork.org and take care of yourselves and each other. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing.com at heritageradionetwork.org Please follow us at processing on Instagram Processing is powered by Simplecast Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network Food radio supported by you For our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter Enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore radio.